This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. One of the questions I'm most frequently asked through the contact page at thesalesblog.com is what do I recommend in the way of a simple CRM for a small team or a growing team in a small or medium-sized business that isn't complex, that isn't super expensive, that's going to allow them to go out and do the work they need to do with their customers, to be able to have the tools that they need to manage the sales force to be up and running very, very quickly and with all of the things that you need without all the external things that have been bolted onto many CRMs that make it difficult for people to use. And for a long time, I've had nothing to recommend in that regard, but I have some friends at SAP and as we were exploring working together, I spent some time on their CRM And I think it's worth a look. If you're interested in growing your business with a very simple all-in-one CRM that's going to serve your needs without you paying for a lot of the things that you don't need, you want to take a look uh, at the link here in the show notes and go out and check out SAP's digital CRM. And I'll tell you a few of the things that I like about it. I think that the most interesting thing about it is that you're going to be able to get up and running really quickly. You're going to have the ability to manage your contacts, which you need to do because that's the foundation of your relationships. You're going to be able to manage your opportunities. And a couple things that are super important to me, I think, are you're going to be able to personalize it to fit your company and the way that you work. And you're also going to find a CRM that was actually designed for mobile instead of having mobile as something that comes later. And at $22 per user per month, you literally can't beat that price. So if you need a simple all-in-one CRM that's going to serve you and that's going to serve your company without you paying for more than you need and without needing a bunch of programmers to help you build things, you want to go check out SAP's Digital CRM. Hit the link in the show notes and check out SAP Digital CRM. Many, many years ago, I was the president of my local Toastmasters club, and a young guy walked in, and he was just getting his start, and he wanted to become a public speaker, and he had very, very high ambition, and he was an interesting guy, and I watched him work very hard, and you now know that gentleman as Lewis Howes from the School of Greatness podcast, who's a good friend and has done just terrific over the last eight or nine years that I've known him. So when Lewis sent me a note and introduced me to Nigel Green, on Lewis's recommendation, I took a call and started talking to Nigel about the business, about sales growth, about the obstacles to scaling a team, and we immediately hit it off as Lewis suggested we would. After reading Nigel's work about listening and after studying sales long enough to know that it's probably the downfall for many of us that we are more interested in speaking than listening, I invited him in the arena to talk about listening. So now you can do that. Listen to me, talk to Nigel and ask him questions about the power of listening. 
Nigel Green in the arena. Hey, Nigel, how are you? I'm well, Anthony. How are you this morning? Good. Good to see you. We met through a mutual friend, Lewis House. Tell me uh, how you know Lewis. I met Lewis uh, a couple of years ago. He was in town visiting with a friend of mine, Mike, and we just hit it off. Lewis, as you know, is a guy that just has a kind heart and a warmth that it's hard not to like Lewis. So we had a great conversation and just have remained friends since then. Good dude. But where'd you meet him the first time? Here in Nashville. Yep. Yeah, here in Nashville at a at a burger joint of all places uh, in Nashville, which is where we met. I thought you met before that at a football camp. No, no, no. So what's interesting about that, Lewis played professional football for a team that I got invited to try out for. And I elected that it just wasn't for me at that season uh, too, at life. So. Too physically demanding. Yeah, and the, and the money wasn't right for the price that, <laughs> that was going to be paid on my body. Too poverty-inducing. Yes, yeah, exactly. That, that's more like it. Yeah, you but know what? We it's, didn't We didn't meet then, though. That's one of those kind of serendipitous things that we have in common. I never knew Lewis at the time. We were probably in the same athletic complex at the same time, didn't know each other, and it's just kind of how it played out. Met 10 years later. Yeah, that's interesting how that works. Serendipity. Yeah. yeah you. It just happens when it happens. Well, tell me about I want to talk about your background in sales, and I want to start by just talking about how we think about effectiveness as salespeople. And you've got a a post on your site about listening, and it's very interesting to me. So I want to I want to start there, just specifically because listening is not done very well. Well, so I, it's not done very well, and I have to tell you, when I first started out in sales, spent my entire career in sales. Uh, I've had some success, most recently. Scaling a company from 94 million to 350 million before I started my own consulting business. But that wasn't always the case for me. When I first started, I would have a physical reaction to a sales call. I would get so sick and nervous that I just didn't even want to go in the room. And the reason for that, Anthony, is I was so worried about what I was going to say, how I was going to pitch them. And would my words and the way I strung my words together be effective enough to convince them to buy from me? It was so bad, in fact, that one of the best things that ever happened to me was my my manager set me down and said, hey, this isn't working out. And he gave me the gift of a performance improvement plan. And if anybody's ever been on one of those, it, it's really clear. You've got 90 days to improve your results or this isn't going to work for, for either party. So I at, at that point... I had very few options, and I decided that I was going to go spend the next couple of weeks with the top two reps in the company and learned what it was about their pitch that was so effective that they could have these massive sales results. So I flew out and spent time with both of them, recorded every single sales call on my iPhone, and then when I got back and started listening to them in my office, I was really disappointed because neither one of them helped me improve my pitch at all. In fact, what I learned is they don't pitch anything. And in your, you've got a really good post on the three level of sales skills. I was still at this very first kind of introductory level where I had not very much to bring. I was so focused on what I was going to say. But as I learned that these level two and level three salespeople that can diagnose and build up a business acumen – Part of being a good salesperson, being able to diagnose what's going on with a customer's needs is really having 
the patience and the comfort level of just asking questions and allowing space for the customer to speak. And that was the, the big distinction in my career that, that actually saved my career. I want to talk about a couple things here. The, the first one is, I think everyone should be on a improvement plan. Everyone. I mean, like, why, why would the top performer not have a plan for being even better in the following year? And it always strikes me funny that we'll go to the bottom 20% and we'll put them on a performance improvement plan. But what about the middle 60% who you need to get better to? It just, uh, it's always struck me funny that we would take the low performer and say, I'm going to invest in this individual, but not the A's and B's and C's, just the D's and F's. You're right. And you've worked with some sales stars and you know that they may call it something else, but they have effectively put themselves on a performance improvement plan. They, they're the ones that are most susceptible to coaching. I mean, the, the ones that are like, what other edge can I get? How do I get even better? Yeah, but I think the middle 60, they should be on a performance improvement plan too. It's interesting that you had the experience of watching better and more successful reps, because I think that the the thing that's missing a lot in in sales development right now is that a lot of salespeople are working from home and they're not in a bullpen and they're not exposed to people who have a better skill set than they do. And so they don't get to see that skill set modeled. And you had a chance to see it modeled and you had the the experience of not finding what you were looking for. And what you were looking for is who's got the magic words and who's got this great pitch that I could copy. And you find out that it's it's not the pitch. It's the way that they interact. And this is something that uh, I think it takes a long time to pick up, is that we think we're doing discovery work. But when you sit and you watch an interaction that's done by a very good salesperson with very high-level skills, they're actually helping the prospective client do the discovery work themselves. They're asking the questions that cause somebody to discover something about themselves and their business and what needs to change that they're enabling and allowing to have happen. It's a, it's dual discovery going on at the same time when it's done well. What they know is that any motivation that the client may have to work with you is far stronger than a motivation I can give to them or help uncover for them. So what I have to do is find why might you work with me instead of telling you all the reasons why other people have. And let's just go there. That's the trick. What are they compelled by? Instead of trying to manufacture something out of thin air, in most cases, it doesn't work. Let's go back to listening. I read your post, and I, I think it's interesting because it's even more than listening. And I, I want to give you a view of this that you and I haven't talked about. This is our first time, so I'm sharing this with you for the first time. But sure, what I notice is that you've got a list of bad behaviors that can be turned around another way. And those bad behaviors, to me... I never understand why somebody wants conflict unnecessarily. Now, sometimes in a sales call, conflict is necessary. You need to change something. And so you have to create something where there's tension for sure. But I never understand why we want to be argumentative. And a, a lot of the things that you have in your, your list, I would say, cause somebody to have to defend their point of view. And I think selling is, uh, it should be more like jujitsu than it is like boxing. I don't want to feel somebody's fists come up and feel like they have to start defending themselves. And I, I think that your post uncovers, there's a lot of things that we do that create a certain set of resistance that if we went a different direction would eliminate some of that resistance. So the starting point for this in your post is telling people. And this is my favorite thing to hear salespeople say, 
I told them that they need to do this and they didn't listen. And yeah, you're smiling. No one can see that because this is audio, but I can see it. Yeah, that's right. And clients don't listen and that's okay. We don't listen either. So let's just get that out there. Most people aren't very good at listening. And you're right. It is when you are communicating, this just is, this is a gift really, Anthony, that salespeople can take. But if you can get better at communicating and listening and understanding it's a two-way street, you're going to have a lot more to give to everybody that you come in contact with. And you take people where they want to go. And I think that's kind of like the essence of jujitsu is let's just go with where the momentum's already going versus trying to fight it. And when you're telling someone something or asserting your opinion before it's been asked for, that's the big distinction. In in all of these bad behaviors, you're right. It's okay to have conflict with a customer. It is okay to consult a customer, but let's wait until we have permission. And I think that the dangerous mistake a lot of us make is this is understanding the expert spectrum. It's totally okay for you to find yourself as an expert. But it is a big mistake if you don't view your customer as an expert too. And I think a lot of salespeople think that they have more expertise than the customer. Maybe on your product, but certainly you don't have the level of expertise that they do on their problem. And they they also have their own opinion about what they want and how it's going to work in their company and what would have to happen for it to be successful. I mean, there's a lot of knowledge that everything that you need to know as a salesperson is in the other person's mind. And you have to find a way to elicit that. And listening is a powerful tool for eliciting that. I want to go through a couple of the other ones while we're talking here. Scaring the customer. And I, I, I see this. We want to compel people to change so much. We want to do this. And you've got a, a quote in here from the salesperson where the client says something like, listen, we're really happy with our provider. And the salesperson says, did you see the article about their lawsuit? Like that's going to work. At at some point, this is the person that made the decision to choose them and probably has deep relationships. And in a complex B2B sale, maybe has a strategic relationship. And so basically, you're not really scaring them. What you're doing is insulting them by saying, Nigel, you're really probably too stupid to know this. But if you were, you wouldn't be doing this dumb thing that you're doing. Again, now I feel this. I feel like I've been attacked. So I have to start being more defensive about our conversation instead of opening up. And What's worse is I have met managers and sales leaders who have institutionalized this type of tactic. They fear monger when news, bad news comes out about the competition. They require the reps call all their leads that are using them and go down this scare tactic path. And it's just not helpful. I always find it better to go the other way, you know, and just say, listen, that's a good company. They do really good work. And we have some friends over there. We like them very much. We just have a very different model. And if you'll let me share it with you, I'll show you what the differences are and why it might make sense to have another conversation. I don't understand the attacking it because it just doesn't work. No, it doesn't. That's a far more helpful and engaging response that you just gave our listeners today. And it's true. You know, I know everybody wants to think, and we are, we, we have to be better than our competitors in the area that we are. But My favorite one is when people say, you know, what makes you different? And the salesperson says, our people. Like you've got a monopoly on all the good, smart people and your competitor has all the dumb, awful people, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. How does that work? I have never yet found that company that has all A players in every role. It just doesn't work that way. Exactly. 
Tell me about consulting. Again, yeah, consulting is a very useful thing for a salesperson to do with their client. In fact, in some sales roles, it's the entire essence of the call. They're paying you to consult and give advice. What I'm trying to call out is when we prematurely consult with a potential buyer. This is not a meeting where we are unpacking a problem that was the essence of the call, where they said, let's talk about problem X. It's where we're doing discovery. They share something with us like, sorry, I'm late. I'm a little bit frazzled. A robot just went down and all our surgeries are out of whack. And you say something like, well, have you called the manufacturer rep? And have you taken these steps? Have you done this and that? Probably. And if they needed your opinion on it, they might ask for it. And that's where we have to just, it's a very subtle shift. But if we just say, I understand, I have empathy that that is disruptive to your business. How might I be helpful? Right. Better question. It is just a better question. I'm here to serve you, not here to close you. I'm here to help you. I want to go through just a couple more of these because I, I think it's worth sharing this view because the things that we do that cause us the most problem is our own behavior in sales interactions. And honestly, when you reach a certain level of understanding, the result that you get is directly the result of how you approach the sales call. And so any of the challenges you have with, I couldn't get the client to agree to this or that, that's something that you did that you have to change what you do. And that's the only thing you can ever change is how we approach the client and what, and what we do. And words are important. I want to talk about stroking their ego. And I've seen this one done countless times. So just comment on that one. What happens and what do we do? What happens is they, in the meeting, share something with you about their perception of a tactic, a perception of a strategy in their business, or just a perception. It really could be something as benign as what's going on. Nothing related. They like this football team. We pretend we like this football team to something as really serious as they think direct mail is still a useful tactic for their business. You know it's not. You have data that says it's not. And you don't mind if they just continue to buy printed material from you because the commission supports your wallet. That's a, that is stroking at its most simplistic level. And we should stop doing that. The long-term value of the customer is diminished for short-term gains. I had this conversation with a client a week ago. And he said do you uh, like such and such football team? And uh, I said, no, I, I don't really watch football. And he said, but then you probably watch basketball or, and I said, but I don't, I don't watch that either. I don't, I don't have any way to, to have this connection because I watch like one hour of TV a week and I will watch the Ohio state Buckeyes a couple times during the year. Cause in Columbus, it's a law and they will come in, you know, lock you up if you're not an Ohio state fan. That's just how it works. Yeah. Oh, just, just hearing that little summary, I can tell that you, you have some common ground with that customer and that you're both passionate. And that's that would be a good way to take it. He's passionate about the sports and you're passionate about teaching. I let him talk about his uh, his, his lessons from sports. That's good. You know, it's, yeah, it's fine. I, I just don't have the ability to, to comment on it because I don't know that much. What do you see as an effective behavior f for salespeople in a call to improve their listening? What do they have to change? 
This is really simple. It, it's and it's rudimentary. It's something that everyone here can do. It doesn't matter if your sales environment is in a face to face setting or even over the phone. What, what I like to do is I'm a no technology guy in a sales meeting. You know, the, the sales rep that comes in and he wants to be really fancy. So he flips his iPhone upside down to show you that he's listening. Like, I'm not going to look at these screens. So I have a rule of phones in our pocket. If you're going to take notes, we're not going to use a computer. Uh, we're not going to be fancy. We're just going to write. What that allows for me to do is very discreetly during the meeting, I, I tell the customer, I've got this pad out because I'm just going to take notes so that I can remember different things about the conversation. One of the things I want to remember is how many questions I ask versus how many statements I make. And I just keep a little tally on that notepad. When I ask a question, I give myself a little tick. When I make a statement, give myself a little tick. It's a good meeting for me if I ask twice as many questions as statements that I make in that meeting. And that's something that everyone can do. If you start tracking your question to statement ratio, you will become a better listener. My favorite thing that I've learned, I didn't learn this until probably like, I'm going to say seven years ago. Seven years ago, I recognized that everyone I spoke to interrupted me, invariably. doesn't matter who it was, whatever the conversation was, I got interrupted. So I, I decided to start waiting for a four count after they were done talking to see if they were really done talking. And they weren't. They would keep talking. If you just give them a little pause, they're not really done. And then I started to stretch it to eight. And I'm talking about every relationship in my life, my wife, my kids, my mom, business partners, clients, everyone. I would just wait and leave this uncomfortable silence for about this long. That's great. And, and then somebody would start, they, they weren't done talking. And then they keep going. And I decided then after that, that my, my new strategy would be to wait until people are run out of words. And it's funny because when they do run out of words, you found something much, much deeper than they shared at the beginning of whatever they were saying. And then they start to get to the heart of what's really on their mind. And, and it's just because you left them the space to keep exploring. And I think that sometimes they're saying something that it's the first time they've heard it. And so it's coming out and they're processing it. So what you'll love about the better responses that I share in this article is it essentially does that work for you. It reminds the customer what they just said because the response is just a reframe. We're going to articulate back to them what they said in our own words to demonstrate that we did hear them, that we were clear, and also to remind them that there's more to say about it. So if, if someone can use these new responses to client resistance and then add that four to eight second pause, I'm telling you, your customers aren't done. They're just getting started. The interesting thing about the responses that you have here is that it's an agreement and an alignment with what they said, and it's not combative. And it means that we're not going to have conflict over this thing at the beginning of this call. And when somebody says something that we, I think for salespeople, we feel like, well, what they said doesn't serve me. So I have to do something like I'm happy with my competitor. Oh, then I have to find a way to tear the competitor down. Or the robot's broken. And well, did you call the manufacturer's rep? Why haven't they done anything? Again, I'm trying to create dissatisfaction. And we're so anxious to do that, that instead of just finding out, you know, what their view is and having a, a discussion about it, we sort of try to jump to, I'm going to use this to leverage their unhappiness to create something. Yeah. And it's interesting how we want to create that conflict when we're not the source of it. 
But then we'll talk about in this article another tactic called distracting. But when we're the source of the conflict, when we're the ones at fault, we don't want to talk about it. So we, we want to remind them that, yeah, maybe this, this spin category is off the chart and you should be asking questions. We want to skirt over here and say, but did you see how, how good we were in this section? When we really just need to have the conversation about where we missed it. Let me move us out of listening and into yeah. scaling a sales organization. Tell me the two or three biggest learning outcomes for you about the challenges in scaling a sales organization specifically. I want to make this distinction. When you are hiring a lot of new reps in a short period of time, I've learned that you can't ask them to do everything. There are exceptions to that rule. When you have a very seasoned sales organization, you might find that your account executives can do everything in the buying cycle from prospecting to qualifying to closing accounts and then, and then servicing those accounts. But when speed is the name of the game, I've found that you have to create a division of labor because the new people you're bringing on can't possibly do everything at the level you expect of them in the short amount of time that's allotted. So you have to say, if you are a prospector, you don't close. If you close, you don't prospect, you don't service accounts. If you service accounts, the only thing you are closing is an upsell or a cross-sell. You're not bringing on new business. That way, everyone has clarity in their role so that we can go really fast. Where I see the challenge for sales organizations there is that they have pure hunters that should actually be doing that hunting work. And then they make them account managers. And then that, that account manager immediately becomes a glorified customer service person. And they spend all the time following up on small transactional problems that do need to be resolved. I'm not downplaying. I mean, if somebody needs to take care of them, you're executing and you've got challenges. But then that, that person ends up in a role where they're no longer considered a peer and they're not really creating opportunities. They're doing something that we would rather have somebody else in the organization do. Is that your experience with that now? It is. And one of the things I see kind of in that same lane, Anthony, is they aren't creating testimonials and success stories while they're in that role. They're servicing the account, but they're not leveraging how well what we're saying we're doing is helpful to the enterprise. So an example might be, they may be project managing it and saying, well, we're hitting every deadline that we told you. We're delivering everything on time. But what was the value? What was the return on their invested money and energy with your company? And how are we leveraging that to position ourselves as, as credible in the marketplace? And that's really where I see that. And that we call that customer success. And I think Aaron Ross, who wrote Predictable Revenue, said it's going to be one of the most important roles in a selling organization in the future. And I think a lot of companies are just missing it. I think it's a big investment for companies to have a client success manager. I think you're, you're spending money. And the experience I have is looking at different sales organizations. If you can't create value and generate the next opportunity and validate that we are having this success and this is the next thing we need to do together, and then bring and create that opportunity, you're going to have a very, very tough time 
financially. I mean, and, and that's what I see. The big struggle is around we're willing to invest in them, but they have to do more than be a glorified customer service person. Yeah. And, and the challenge that I assert to those organizations is, well, maybe it's time to think about what's an additional offering that we need to create so that this customer success role has something to go back and continue the engagement. We know right. it's far easier to keep a customer than it is to go get a new one. So why, why exhaust the offering when we can just expand the portfolio and say, Mr. Customer, how else can we be helpful for you? What, what are some other things we can do that would be valuable to your enterprise? Because we, we want to be an extension of your business. That's where we have to be in the customer success role. Give me a couple other outcomes that you, you picked up from scaling. And this kind of goes into that customer success thing. We get focused on metrics like pipeline creation, new leads, top of the funnel stuff. And then we get this little thing called account churn that starts to creep up and we have to invest in recovery and saves and keeping business. And that is the, the essence of, of scaling is if I'm having to do twice the amount of effort just to maintain where we are, if we're losing almost as much business in a period as we're bringing on, we're not paying attention to the tactics that, that we're deploying. And we have to invest in keeping customers that are already in the lower part of the funnel engaged and happy. It's interesting to me that I don't think people do enough work in that particular area specifically because they're good sales organizations. And so they think they can outrun the churn and and they find out later on that it, churn is something very difficult. And all you're doing is you're going and adding a new client who you are going to disappoint and lose in the same way you disappointed and lost the clients that you're churning right now. And it, it doesn't make sense to invest the effort to bring on clients only to fail. And so the, the execution ends up being what allows you to, to scale is that you you can scale the execution at the same time. And when you can't scale the execution, all you do is run in place. The last thing, you're right. The last thing I want to say about scaling quickly, I've seen companies that are really quick to hire more people, which is a really expensive investment, but yet they won't give the team the tools they're asking for. They don't, they won't invest in a CRM like Salesforce. They won't go buy leads. They won't buy all the integrations to allow the, all the data and all the business intelligence to be at a rep's disposal on their tablet out in the field. But yet they'll go hire four more reps, which is 20 times more expensive than what these yeah. tools cost. So if you're not giving the team you have the tools they need, don't go hire anybody else. <laughs> I have this thing I stole from my buddy Gerhard at Selling Power, which is mindset, skill set, toolkit. I mean, you need all three. And you need them in that order. I mean, you need the mindset, then you need the skills, but you've got to have the tools. It's part of the recipe. That's absolutely right. Tell me where we send people to find you. Yeah, you can go to findevergreen.com. And if you want to, if you're a sales manager or you're a salesperson and you want to improve your listening skills, I have a worksheet that supports the article that we've been talking about today. And you just go to findevergreen.com slash listen. You can download this PDF. I have a lot of sales managers call and, and thank me for adding it because they've been able to use it as an extension of their sales training, whether it be onboarding or at a sales meeting. It's just a great way to 
really catalyze some role playing with your sales team about what are the types of responses and objections we hear from our customers and how can we institutionalize better listening and better questioning with our prospects and customers. So find evergreen.com slash listen. We will put that in the show notes and uh, thanks so much for coming on. It's been my pleasure. I've really admired you for a long time and thank you for all that you've taught us over the years. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. That was Nigel Green and you can find him at Find Evergreen. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com where I publish a post every day. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. When you go there, do sign up for the newsletter on the blog and subscribe to the YouTube channel so that you can find me every day talking about sales, about leadership, about coaching, and about success. Until next time, I'll see you in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.